So we're continuing in our series, God Center Community, from the book of Exodus. And uh, today, the title is Saved by Grace. I was reading, uh, in fact, I was reading this morning about uh, C.S. Lewis, who uh, a famous Christian author of years gone by. And uh, he was, uh, uh, there was a conference going on, and the conference was an interfaith conference, and they, the discussion was around the difference between Christianity and other religions. And people from different faiths were, were discussing what the, the difference was. Was it the ascension? Was it uh, the resurrection? Uh, what was it? And uh, they couldn't agree. And C.S. Lewis happened to walk in to the debate that was going on. And he was asked the question, um, what is, uh, what, what's the difference between Christianity and every other religion? And C.S. Lewis said, just very simply, it's grace. It's the grace of God. And as they discussed it, they concluded that that was the difference. Many years ago, back in the uh, mid-80s, I went to uh, Brighton, a, a conference in Brighton, and uh, I heard a guy speaking called Terry Virgo, and uh, this is a book he's written, God's Lavish Grace. And I remember going, and uh, I thought I understood what grace was. I came from uh, a traditional church background, and, uh, but as he started to talk uh, from Romans chapter 7, and he opened Romans 7, and uh, it was like the curtains opened in front of my eyes. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I really understood what grace was all about. And over these last years, I've been growing in understanding the wonder of God's grace. This is a great book. Uh, how many of you have not read it? Who would like to read it? If you want it, first person to come and get it, come and get it. I'll make sure you get a copy as well. We're going to read some verses from Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be going, uh, dipping into uh, uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus 13 and Exodus 14. But I'm going to start by reading Ephesians chapter 2, the first five verses. And uh, it's written by a Paul to the church in uh, St. Paul to the church in Ephesus. And this is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the instructions of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Paul, who wrote this, had a really checkered past. We're told he was involved in the murder of the first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 8. After this, he set out to destroy the church. He threw uh, believers in prison. 
He says of himself that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He describes himself as the worst of sinners. When he became a follower of Jesus, he has a radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, he puts his trust in Jesus and starts to follow him. But when that happens, most people in the early church were dubious that he was genuine. Paul says that God saved him, not because of anything he'd done, not because deep down God saw some promise in him that uh, if he saved him, he'd do a good job for him. Paul was saved totally by the grace of God. The undeserved, the unmerited favor of God. Grace is extraordinary. And each one of us, if you're a believer, you have been saved by grace, by nothing you have done or deserved. And in our series, God-Centered Community, we've, we've now reached the climax of the Exodus story. The Israelites have, uh, Pharaoh has let them go. And we come to the part where the Israelites escape the Egyptian army by crossing through the Red Sea. We've seen that the Israelites could do nothing to alleviate their suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. Pharaoh has brutally enslaved them as a, as a people for centuries. Simply deciding to up and leave was not an option. They needed someone to deliver them. And in despair, they cried out to the only one who could save them. They cried out to the living God and God heard their cry. God delivers them in an amazing way through Moses. This morning, I, my glasses are very focal. That means that when I want to read, I need to look through the bottom half of the lens and I can read something that's close at hand. When I am looking in the distance, I need to use the top half of the lens. And if I get it wrong, everything gets blurred. As we are reading this passage, we need spiritual, very focal lenses. Because the story that's in front of us in Exodus reveals God's mercy in setting free a people who frankly don't deserve his help. But we also need to have our eyes on the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that the story of Exodus serves as a foreshadowing of God's deliverance of humanity from our slavery to sin. Sin is our rebellion against the God who created us. And God's plan has always been to create a new people saved by grace. And that people is the church. And so God sends his son, Jesus, to rescue us. We've been celebrating that. This morning, that is the big picture. We've done nothing. Jesus has done everything. And Exodus is a glorious reminder 
of our salvation. In the last two weeks, we have seen God's last judgment, which forces Pharaoh's hand. And as death overshadows the Egyptian nation and the aftermath of the Passover, Pharaoh finally says to Moses, you can take God's people out of the land. And as they do that, I want you to see there are three things. And the first thing is this, that God's newly formed people had a new identity. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 19. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the uh, road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. You know, leaving Egypt for these people was more than just a change of address. For God's people, it was a change of identity. It was the moment they ceased being slaves. And they leave taking Joseph's bones with them. Joseph had been the one, the means of uh, their original uh, deliverance from famine. And uh, Joseph's family all come to Egypt. And when Joseph is dying, he says, I want you, when you leave, you're going to leave. God's going to deliver you and I want you to take my bones with you. So as they're taking Moses is taking Joseph's bones with him. They know they're not coming back. They're doing it because they're going for good. God has done something. They have a new identity. And yet as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that in their hearts, nothing has changed. They still have a slave mentality. They're free, but they still think like slaves. They are like uh, animals, wild animals in a zoo that spend so long in a cage pacing around that when you take them out of the cage, all they know is to pace up and down. They, they've lost their wildness. You see, the Egyptians actually, as you read this story, still view them as their slaves. And they uh, seek to get them back as we'll find out as we read through this passage. And deep down in the Israelites' hearts, they thought they were slaves still too. What about us? How do we view ourselves? Are you still, do you still view yourself as a sinner, someone who fails God and disappoints him and lets him down? Do you spend most of any time you pray you feel guilty? Or do you know that you are a saint? The New Testament word for believers is saint, a holy one. 
Do you know that you stand before God holy, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you? Do you know that you live, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live in Christ? You're not in the world any longer. Do we live like we used to live before we came to faith? Or do we live every day in the grace of God? Not legalistically in a religious way, trying to please God by what we do, but we so love him that we want to live in a way that pleases him. You see, there's a difference between what goes on in our heads often and what's happening in our hearts. The Israelites left, we're told, armed for battle. That means they went in military formation. They were marching out boldly, we're told. They were marching out defiantly. Yet it's not long before we see that they were racked with fear. See that in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 14. Instead of trusting the God who has just worked incredible miracles to bring them out of Egypt, they focus on their inability to fight this army. Probably the greatest superpower in the world of its day, but they're terrified of this army. Having seen what God's just done, they are still racked with fear. You see, the proof that we're not living out of our identity in Christ is that we so easily slip back into old ways of thinking, especially fear. Fear makes us forget all that God has done in the past and all that God has promised to do in our present. Terry Virgo says this, fear drains our strength. It will distract us from our course of action. It will cause us to get things out of proportion. It will make us forget what we know and have experienced to be true. It makes foolish alternatives look attractive. Fear distorts everything. We all experience it, but we must learn to master it. John tells us in his first letter, perfect love drives out fear. You see, when we know that we are loved by the God of heaven who created all things, when we know that he didn't withhold his only son from us, fear is dispelled. What can man do to us? God is for us. If the son sets us free, we are free indeed, John tells us. Do we feel safer living under law or grace? With a set of rules and regulations. God doesn't want us to live like that. He wants us to live out of our new identity in Christ. To live by the grace of God. God has done something in our lives if we put our trust in him. That we now know he is our father in heaven. And we can call him father. How precious is that? The God of the ages is our Father. God wants us to live out of that truth. It can be true for us today if you've not given your life to him.
a new identity. The second thing we see is the importance of learning to trust God. This is what it says. I'm going to read some verses from Exodus chapter 13 and through to chapter 14. The Israelites set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel by day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Piharahath between Migdal and the sea, you must camp in front of Baal Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. I remember leaving Swansea as, uh, in my 20s to move down this way. I left, I, I just felt, I, I felt God had called me and I gave up my job and I moved down and I ended up in, uh, living in Hedge End. I was a little like uh, the children of Israel leaving Egypt, leaving defiantly. I was so sure in my, uh, in my head that God had spoken to me. And yet, over the coming weeks and months, it got really tricky. And I suddenly found that actually what was going on in my head wasn't what was going on in my heart. I needed to learn to follow God, to trust God. You see, the children of Israel, as they left Egypt, God goes ahead of them. The fire and the cloud were a reminder of his presence. Do you know that God is leading you? God has given us his word. His word, the Bible says in Psalm 119, is a lamp for our feet. This is a guide for us as we walk through this world in these tricky days. God has also given us of his spirit. We are people filled with the spirit of God. We are people of word and spirit. And so God's spirit leads us. We're to, pe- we're to be people who keep in step with the spirit. We don't walk by uh, the letter of the law. We walk, walk by word and spirit. We are never alone. Even if you feel that you're alone and you feel that God isn't around, God has given us his word and he's put his spirit in our heart to lead us. For the children of Israel, it wasn't long before they realized that God issued some strange directions. He didn't take them by the most direct and the easiest route. God made sure they avoided the Philistine country That warlike nation. Why? Well, this is a sign of God's kindness to us. John McKay in his commentary said this. The Lord does not always take his people by the route they expect. His wisdom and care transcend our human expectations. You see, it won't be long in the coming months that they're having to fight their own battles. 
But in this moment, God has bigger plans. He often does things like this. He leads us in ways we don't understand and in ways that make little sense to us. But God is doing something behind the scenes. Ultimately, it's always about his glory and it's always for our good. That's what we're told in Romans 8.28. Is that really true? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. God wants us to be a people who trust him. You see, God often does things beyond our frame of reference. And in this moment, God is drawing out what's in Pharaoh's heart like a master chess player. Maybe Pharaoh only expected them to disappear for a few days, which is what Moses had originally asked for. I mean, goodness knows why Pharaoh changes his mind and thinks that he can, uh, he can recapture the, uh, the, the, the people of God. Has he just forgotten what's happened to his nation? The nation has been devastated because they've opposed God. So when they chase the children of Israel, and I'm running ahead of myself because we're going to come to that in the story in a little while. They chase the Israelites through the Red Sea. Suddenly, dread falls on the Egyptians. The fear of God falls on them. In Psalm 77, we read of a, a thunderstorm, thunder and lightning. And then the wheels quite literally come off the wagons. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he is no tame God. Here we see the justice and the wrath of God against those who oppose him. Listen, if God is fighting for the Israelites, fighting for his people all those years ago, now in Christ, will he not fight for you? In his own good time, God will deal with all those who mistreat us, who abuse us. We need to forgive them, move on, and trust God. We wait for him resting in what Christ has done for us. Finally, we see the importance of cutting off the past to move on. This is what it says. I'm going to read some verses from Exodus 14. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. The 
the Israelites were paralyzed with fear. Moments like this are like, it's a bit like their past is catching up with them. If you've read any Shakespeare, read Macbeth, you'll know Lady Macbeth keeps reliving her past treachery and she's, it's as though she sees she's got uh, blood on her hands. She can't seem to get away from her past. Maybe that's what it's like for you. You seem to live, you seem to be doing okay for a moment and then suddenly it's like a video recorder starts of past failures, past mistakes, things that you've got wrong and they seem to catch up with you again and again. You seem to break through but then it comes again. This recorder just keeps playing in your head. We get paralyzed with shame and fear. And anxiety. Like the Israelites, we're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. But God is a God who makes a way where there is no way. We need to see in this passage that it's the angel of the Lord protecting them. Most theologians and scholars consistently through the ages have argued that this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus comes and looks over his people. It's a reminder in the Old Testament of what Christ would do on the cross for us. Prompted by by God, Moses raises his staff and stretches out his hand. And a strong east wind begins to blow through the night. God divides the waters and makes a way through. Such moments are... They require a step of faith on our part to cross over. You imagine them thinking, what if the water comes back? Is it going to be muddy? Will the Egyptians follow? As Tim Keller says, we are saved by who we put our faith in, not the quality of our faith. This is an analogy of baptism. It's the first thing that Jesus asks us as his followers to do. If we put our trust in Jesus, he says, believe and be baptized. Not be baptized, then believe. He says, believe, then be baptized. If you're a believer in Jesus, have you been baptized? You see, the New Testament tells us that the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 to 4 underlines that our our baptism is our identification with Christ's death on our behalf and our resurrection into new life in him. Genuine Christian baptism is a sign that we've undergone our own exodus and entered into a new realm, leaving the old powers of sin that so enslaved us behind. We are now in Christ and we have stepped over from death, we're told, into life. 
Baptism, humanly, doesn't make any sense. So you're saying, Steve, that going into water makes a difference? Really? Spiritually, it is a significant moment. Jesus crossed the cosmos and became a man totally identifying with us. He identified with us in our humanity in every way except he never sinned. And then on that cross, Jesus died the death we should have died. Died in our place. And then he was buried into the ground. Taking the punishment that was rightfully ours. And three days later, Jesus rose again. He identified with us in our humanity and our failures and our sin. When we get baptized, we identify with Christ. When we go into the water, we identify with the fact that he died the death that we deserve. And we are dead to our past. When we rise out of the water of baptism, we are identifying with his resurrection life. He identified with us. We identify with him. We are in Christ. Baptism is a powerful spiritual moment. If you haven't been baptized, let me urge you to do it. We are baptizing people on Easter Sunday next week. Talk to someone at the connect point if you've not been baptized and you know that you need to be. You see, in that moment... The past is being cut off. The Egyptians were pursuing them, but in that moment, their past was cut off. The Egyptians could no longer pursue them. Does it mean in their heads they didn't sometimes afterwards go back to old ways? But that was their choice. The past was cut off. God did something in their baptism in the Red Sea that was significant. When we get baptized, we are declaring to every spiritual force, every power and principality that we are dead to our old life. We are now in Christ. He has no hold over us anymore. We belong to a new king. The Exodus story reminds us of the saving work of Christ. But I want to say this to you. It isn't a proof text that God will deliver us from every trial. I know people, people close to me, who've used verses from this passage that we've just read. Verses like, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. They've used them as a proof text that God is going to heal them. I've watched that happen. Now, God can give us verses that we take out of context, and faith rises in our heart when we read them. But that is not, it's not a proof text that God is going to do that in every situation. We're living in days when God's kingdom has come. It's here, but it's not yet. It's not yet in its fullness. There will be a day when Jesus will return and we will see God's kingdom come in all its might and glory. We know now the tension we live in days between healing and suffering, struggling, crying out to God, God, would you heal? Would you break through for us? But we know that there is a greater healing coming when Jesus returns. 
We trust God's sovereignty. We trust the God of his word. The Exodus story tells us that once we're in Christ, we have passed out of slavery to sin. And the point of the Exodus story is not a proof text for anything other than this, that we now need to live in a different way. Because we belong to a new king. We live in grace, not under law. It's the story of our salvation. It reminds us of our responsibility to live in a new way for Jesus because he loves us so much. This is our story. We all pass over. We all live in a new way together. We are all a people saved by grace. As we draw to a close this morning, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? You belong to a greater king. God's children are free from all condemnation and guilt. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Maybe you need to do freedom in Christ. Maybe you need to know and have uh, work out again who you are in him. That you're on solid ground. Is God challenging you today about trusting him? Maybe you found yourself wondering, you're thinking, God, why am I here? You, seem to, you don't seem to know the way. Why are you leading me this way? It seems like a dead end. Maybe you know that you need to trust him afresh again today. Maybe today is the first day for you of putting your trust in him. You're saying, I want to be free from all the things that have dogged my life. You can do that today by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to cut off the past and get baptized. Maybe you've been baptized and you've been looking backwards, spending all your time looking backwards like Israelites could have done, looking over the Red Sea back to the land of Egypt instead of looking forward to all that God has for you. Paul says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then. Stand firm. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are set free to serve the God who loves us. I'm going to finish with this. The Heidelberg Catechism was written to help believers like us. And it was written to help us answer the question, what is our only hope in this life? This is what it says. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This, beloved, 
is our inheritance. It's rich and it's free. And it's free because he paid the price for us. Hallelujah.